Welcome back. Thanks so much for being with us today here at uh, Emmanuel. Thank you for joining us. We're going through the book of Matthew on our Sundays at the moment uh, here in the church. And uh, that's the first book in the New Testament, so easy to find if you have your Bible with you. We're in chapter 9 today. And uh, what Matthew does in, in his book, he, he's one of the four uh, gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew's the first, was written the longest of the four. And uh, Matthew keeps... He keeps using a, a word that, um, that just keeps coming up again and again in, in his account of Jesus' life. Uh, the word behold. You may have noticed it if you've been with us the last few weeks. It, it just comes up again and again. It, it simply means, look, look, uh, look closely. Uh, you get the impression that Matthew, he's, he's kind of concerned that we, we don't assume that we've, we've looked we don't imagine that we've, we've seen everything there is to see. He, he, he's kind of, he's, he's insisting on our attention and eager to make sure that we, we see what he's seeing. We look at what he's looking at. One of my daughters, when she was young enough for me to carry her everywhere, she used to uh, sometimes give up on telling me to look at things. If, she, if she'd seen something she wanted me to look at, she would resort sometimes to force uh, she'd grab my face and pull it in the direction of what it was she wanted me to see because she knew that was the only way she was going to get my full attention. And I kind of feel like Matthew behaves rather like that in this, in this uh, account that he's given us. He, he keeps saying, behold. And it's, it's, really, <laughs> it's, it's really something you can just kind of stay with for the whole of your life, that instruction. Just keep looking, keep beholding Jesus. Matthew's point, it seems to me, is you're never going to completely suss him out. You're never going to be able to say, yeah, I've seen him. I get it now. I've seen Jesus. I can move on. Matthew's like, no, no, you, you don't get to say that. No one ever gets to say that. You will never get to the end of Jesus. You will never, ever reach that point. He is unsearchable. You just got to keep looking. And anyone who thinks, yeah, I've, I've done Jesus now, is, is totally missing the point. Because he is like nobody else. Just paying attention to him and, and looking more closely and then more closely still and learning more every time we look is actually the best thing we could do. It's the best use of our time and our energy and our attention it's, it's good for us. It's why we do this every Sunday. There's not really a better reason for us to do church. There's no, there's no better reason for us to gather here. If what we're doing on a Sunday is not looking to see Jesus, then really we're not doing anything. We're wasting time. We could be doing so many other things, so many other things on a nice sunny day like this. Please go and do something else if it's not really about seeing Jesus. And, and honestly, my friend, if, if you get to see something of Jesus tonight, it won't just be nice. It will be the best possible thing that could have ever happened this evening. And it will be not just a pleasant experience. It may not even be a pleasant experience, but it will be an experience. But whatever it is, it will be good for you. Because there's no one else quite like him. There's no one else about whom it can be said that by beholding him, by seeing him, we see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in his face and we are transformed. We're changed when we look at Jesus. 
Who can you say that about? When every time you see him, every time you take a true look at him, it, it does something inside you. It changes you. It changes you. So that's why we gather. That's why we, that's why we worship. That's why we take bread and wine. That's why we baptise people. That's why we take this book and dig into it together because we want to see Jesus and we want to be changed. That's it. You could summarise it like that. That's the point of this whole time that we have. And that's what we're going to do as we take uh, this, this chunk of teaching from Matthew chapter 9. It's one of the stories of, uh, of Jesus healing somebody and we're going to have it read to us uh, as the words come up on the screen. So let's follow this together. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. Okay, let's just pray together before we get into this. Father, we thank you again for your kindness in giving to us these words of scripture uh, for us to see and to learn and to understand and know you and we pray that you would help us now by the power of your Holy Spirit to do just that that we would we would behold we would understand and we would know you through your son Jesus come and speak to us we pray each one speak to us for our lasting benefit and for your glory in Jesus name Perhaps you just pray with me before I finish praying. Just in your heart say, God, please speak to me. Even if you're not used to praying, could you do that just in your heart? Say, God, I'm not even sure if you're there, but if you are, please speak to me. Amen. Okay. Uh, imagine if you're in the hospital and, and you're waiting for news from, from the medic that's, that's come back from maybe the operating room or or uh, from, from doing a, a test with the MRI machine or something. They've, got some, some, they've done some stuff and they've got some news for you and you're waiting. Maybe you've been in this situation before and you're kind of wanting to know, is it going to be a smile? Is it going to be a frown? What, what are they going to say? And they, they lower their kind of mask that they have, you know, whatever they're called, the kind of mask that thing, mask that doctors have, and lower it and there's a big smile. And um, you're, you're, you're relieved and they say, oh, the news is good. And you think, oh, this is so, I'm so pleased to hear it. And then they say, your sins are forgiven. You think, that wasn't what I wanted to know. That's, that's, that's a category mistake. I come to the wrong place. Uh, because that's not, that's not what you expect to be told in, in a medical situation. Something about your sin. In fact, it's almost rather, rather insensitive. And perhaps even rather patronising. Or, or rather offensive to be talked to about your sins your past, your mistakes and failures in the context where you, you clearly need some, some medical uh, assistance, you know, some, some update on your physical condition. And that's, and that's how we'd feel in that situation. So we should at least ask the question, what was Jesus doing in this situation when a clearly uh, physically impaired person, a paralytic, is brought to him and Jesus 
has a reputation as a healer. That's why they brought him to Jesus, because Jesus heals people. And yet the first thing Jesus says to this, this young man, we know he's probably a young man because Jesus refers to him like that. He says, young man, be of good cheer. The news is good. Be of good cheer. Why? Are you going to heal me? Be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. Strange, strange thing to focus on at this point. But we may have noticed, if you've been with us these last few weeks, you may have noticed before that Jesus' understanding of the priority issue can be different than ours. He, he can have his eyes on something quite separate from, from what we think is important. We can be bringing a problem to him, but he wants to talk to us about something else because he sees on a different level. He's good at beholding. And you might have noticed as we, if we had the, the passage read to us, it refers to Jesus seeing the faith of the people that brought the paralytic to him. How do you see someone's faith? Later it says, he, Jesus saw in the hearts of the scribes and said, why do you have evil in your heart? He, he sees evil in someone's heart. I'm not sure I could always do that. You know, I can't tell whether someone's got faith or evil in their heart. I'm not, I'm not like that. But Jesus has this way of knowing us. He knows what's going on inwardly. He knows what's going on under the surface. Not just the presenting issue, but he knows the more significant issue. The, the, sometimes the heart issue, the root issue, the problem underneath the problem. Often we'll feel, I've got a problem. This is my problem. Jesus has a way of going to the problem beneath the problem. In fact, it's fair to say that could even be directly the case in this story. But who knows, maybe this man's illness was directly related to some area of sin and unforgiveness in his past. Some, something in his life that had so crippled him inwardly that he had had physical impact on him. You may have experienced something a bit like that in your own life or, or seen it in, in others. That can, be, that can be the case because guilt and the past and feelings of shame and failure can be such a burden that we, we feel the oppression physically. We feel it as a weight upon us sometimes. Maybe, maybe people suffer from literal aches and pains, migraines and, and, uh, and pressure, you know, serious attacks upon their nerves that cause them physical suffering. But it's related to something that's happened. It's related to something that they've even done that they can't be released from the, the horrible pressure of the guilt and they long for peace from it, long for rest and freedom. And this goes to show us the power of forgiveness. The, the sheer power involved in receiving forgiveness. Might seem like a, a kind of ethereal, kind of nothing issue to be told when you're suffering from paralysis, your sins are forgiven, as if that's kind of a side issue. Who, who cares about my sin? What about the fact I can literally not move any muscles in my body? And I'm stuck on this stretcher for life. Isn't that the issue? Actually, the power of forgiveness is greater still, it seems, than the power of healing. And it can be the root to the power of healing as well. Maybe you've known that in your own life. The power of feeling forgiven. 
the power of knowing I am forgiven. It's like nothing else. It's like nothing else. It's, it's so powerful. It's so wonderful. It's so freeing and releasing. It makes people dance and jump up and down and sing for joy. It, it, it's it's going to affect you if you know from, from, from within your very heart, I am forgiven. It, it's healing to you. It's powerful in your life. It's transforming. And it may even be that the lack, the lack of forgiveness in your life is the cause of the, the desperate restlessness and strife and stress and anxiety that you carry around with you habitually without even realising it. A lot of us, our, our mental health, which we are going to talk more about in the autumn term, is under pr pressure and strain without us even realising it. We don't even know. People around us can know more than we do about how emotionally and mentally exhausted we are because we, the signs occur to them more than they do to us. But the very reason for them can be that we're just carrying around a, a weight of guilt that Jesus wants to redeem us from, rescue us from, and relieve us from, and take the burden away. Release us from the pressure and the burden so that you can walk and run and stand free. That's, that's, the, that's the offer. That's, that's the good news. That's Jesus coming to offer freedom and release for us so forgiveness comes with extraordinary power and Jesus sees you and sees your need for him sometimes way 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 quicker than you do more than you realize how much you need him he knows how much you need him now these these uh, scribes on the other hand they see something else so Jesus sees the need for forgiveness in this young man, the scribes, what they see is blasphemy. When Jesus offers forgiveness to this young man, you notice in, in verse four, behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. Now let's just pause and think, why would they, why would they say that? What's blasphemous about forgiving people? Are they, are they anti-forgiveness, these scribes? No, they actually would be fine with it. They're very pro-forgiveness. So that's all. No, they're fine with that. Their problem is that they, they are offended that Jesus assumes that it's his job to offer forgiveness. Who does Jesus think he is? Just saying to a random stranger, your sins are forgiven. How can he say that? If Jesus is not the offended party, he has no right offering forgiveness to this man. I mean, think of it logically. Maybe, you know, you, you see two people getting into a, a conflict. Maybe, you know, you're on the road and you see two motorists or cyclists or people, you know, kind of squaring up because of some dispute, maybe some road rage and it looks like it could kick off. And you, you think you're going to help, but you're not going to help by going up to one of them and saying, don't worry, be of good cheer, I forgive you. It's like, well, who says, you, who cares? <laughs> who do you think you are? If you're not the offended party, you've got no right forgiving. How, how can I say I forgive you 
to somebody who hasn't obviously wronged me, who I've never even met before. This, this paralytic, it seems as we read the story, Jesus hasn't met him, he's a stranger. But he still says to him, be of good cheer, son, your sins are forgiven. What? Who do you think he is? This is the blasphemy. He can only say that if he thinks he is something utterly extraordinary. Yeah, he's claiming to be God. He's claiming divinity. He's claiming to be what Matthew calls him at the very beginning of his book. Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is claiming that kind of authority to forgive sins. Only God can do that. And yet Jesus claims to do it. And let me say, in this case, the scribes, they get it in a way that 21st century Brightonians generally don't. They, they've understood Jesus way better than we do. Way better. Because they get the fact that he is either telling the truth or he is a blasphemer. He's one or the other. He's either the very God or he is evil, wicked, a liar. In fact, a sick liar. Not just a, a liar, but a sick. How could you say that to someone in dreadful need? How could you make such a horrible, false promise? That's worse than a hoax. It's evil to say to somebody, your sins are forgiven without it being true, offering false assurance, false hope to this desperate young man. No, no, Jesus is wicked if he isn't who he claims to be. The scribes get that. And we generally don't. You go up to your, your average Brightonian today and ask them who Jesus is. I reckon loads of them, if not the majority, will say, eh, he was a really good man. He was a really good man. He was one of the goodies, one of the best. He was up there with, you know, with Gandhi and, and Mandela and, and, and Confucius. He's one of those. He's one of the goodies. But you, you see, you can't say that. You just can't. He's either much more than a good man or he's much, much worse than a good man. He cannot be in between. He's just, that's just not an option. I don't know if you've ever thought of that, but you have to. If you've never thought of it, I invite you to, I urge you to. I urge you to think about the thing that most of Brighton refuses to think about. That most of the UK, most of the world refuses to think about. However sophisticated we get in, in the modern world, however many universities we build and, and however, however much we advance scientifically and, and medically and economically, however much we achieve, and we do achieve a lot. It's extraordinary to me that by and large we refuse to even consider surely the most important question there could ever be, who really is Jesus? Because if Jesus is who he claimed to be, then that changes everything. Everything. We have to start everything all over again. You start the whole equation, you start the whole of life, the whole of society, you build it differently around this first foundation, this first rock, Jesus is the Son of God. Or you say Jesus was a terrible, evil liar, a hoax, a con man of the worst kind. You cannot have in between, and yet our society desperately tries to 
pretend that you can. Tries to build life on the assumption that Jesus is just a really good guy. Ah, uh-uh, can't do it. We have to face the reality of his identity. And in fact, Jesus in this story is insisting on that much himself. Which is why he actually takes it to, to, takes it to 11. You know, he, he, he pushes the pressure up in this awkward situation that he's created. He's made people whisper. People start getting their phones out and tweeting, I can't believe what this young preacher has just said. And Jesus, you'd think, you know, he would do the politician thing and do the quick exit, quick U-turn. I, I didn't mean that. I, no, I misunderstood. No, you completely take my remarks out of the context. No, Jesus actually takes it up a notch. He says, oh, you're offended, are you? All oh, right, well, I'll make it even worse. That's what he says. Look at what he says in verse 4. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier? To say, your sins are forgiven. Or to say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. (laughs) Wow. Talk about being equal to the situation. No, no backstep, no U-turn from Jesus, no awkward exchange with the editor of the magazine to see if he could pull those remarks from the last copy. No, just taking it brazenly up several notches. Okay, okay. You want to question my authority? Let's do this. Let's do this. Clearly, when I say to someone, your sins are forgiven... I could just be saying that. Anyone can just say that. It's very hard to quantify. It's kind of hard to test, you know, to verify whether someone's sins are forgiven. You can't scientifically prove it. But it's kind of more bald and impressive when you actually get a paralytic off his back. So let's do that. Let's, let's point out the power and the authority by actually healing this person that's never, well, hasn't walked for years and years, hasn't moved. Jesus is in this story, on a mission to confirm his authority. He's on a mission to clearly confirm it. He wants us to know. It's the very words he says. So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority. That's the whole point of the story, it seems. That's the whole reason Matthew has it in the book. In fact, Matthew's quite big on this theme generally. You may have noticed at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, at the end of chapter 7, that the people say about Jesus, he teaches not as the scribes teach, but as one with authority. Then later, when Jesus is healing the centurion's servant, this Roman soldier says to him, Jesus, you, you don't have to come to my house. You just say the word and he'll be healed because I recognize that you are a man under authority, having authority. I'm a, I have military authority as a soldier. You have spiritual authority. And at the very end of Matthew, Jesus is going to say at the right in the last paragraph, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go into all the world, discipling all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. Matthew wants us to see the authority of Jesus. He's very, very big on it. And the reason I'm pressing this home is because we generally struggle with this side of Jesus. 
generally in our culture, in our kind of 21st century Brightonian world that we swim around in, we, we without maybe even realising it, have a, an objection, have an allergy to the idea of Jesus having authority, the idea that Jesus is even that title, the Son of Man, which, by the way, doesn't mean that he's just a bloke. It doesn't mean Son of Man like oh, he's a human being. It's a, it's a phrase that's plucked from the Old Testament, from Daniel chapter 7. It's a special title from, from a, a specific place which describes, hundreds of years before, the throne of God being given to a human being who is also divine. Given authority to judge everything. To be in absolute control and authority over every single nation, every living creature. So that everything in heaven and earth comes worshipping, kneeling towards him. So the son of man, when Jesus refers to himself as the son of man, it's no small thing. He's talking very, very big. And he's saying, I want you to know I am the son of man with authority. And yeah, we, we, might, we might like Jesus the guru, Jesus the sage, Jesus the, the inclusive, Jesus the 21st century modern Western liberal. We, we like that Jesus. We like Jesus with the hipster beard and we, we really call that nice Jesus. He's good. We like him. But we're not so comfortable with the idea of his authority. It's why just a few months ago, I, I referred to it before when, when Russell Brand spoke really openly about this in one of his brilliant interviews he did with, with Jordan Peterson. He said, nobody wants a judgmental Jesus. Maybe you saw that. Nobody wants a judgmental Jesus. That, that's, that's so Brighton, isn't it? That he speaks for us all. That's, he speaks for our whole world, it seems. Nobody wants a judgmental Jesus because we think we know exactly what Jesus is like. We think we know exactly what he's supposed to be like. We like him. But here, Jesus is insisting. I want you to know that son of man, that's who I am and I have authority. Ouch. Authority is not a cool, sexy word. It's just oh, uncomfortable for us. So what, what, what do we have to say about this? Now let's, let's try and just see some things from this story that might help us with this idea of Jesus with authority. First of all, let's just be clear, this is a contested authority. What I mean by that is, it's not in a vacuum that Jesus stamps down his authority. It's, it's in a, a point of conflict. Why? Because we also like authority for ourselves. Much as we don't like the concept of authority, we quite like having it. We don't necessarily want to come under someone else's, but we, we want ours. And the reason in this story that the scribes, who are only doing their job, I mean, they're, they're saying you're a blasphemer, and they are the blasphemy police. That's what they're there for. They're meant to look out for blasphemy in Israel. They care about this kind of stuff. It's bad when someone blasphemes, right? They're just doing their job. And Jesus says, you've got evil in your heart. What? Why? What's, what's the issue? He's, because he's saying... You, you actually are clinging to your authority over against the authority of heaven. Why do I say that? Well, 
their concern, actually, when they say Jesus offering forgiveness on the streets of Galilee, who do you think you are doing that? The clash for them inwardly would also be because they, they represent, and they feel part of, and they feel identity with the existing system by which ordinary people are supposed to access forgiveness. So forgiveness is, is all the way through the Bible. God's offer of forgiveness is, is a good thing and God keeps making ways by which we can find forgiveness from him. And in the, in the early chunks of the Bible, in the law, there's a whole system that's described and prescribed so that we can get forgiveness. It involves an actual place you have to go to. It involves an actual ritual that you need to observe. It involves actual people who you need to engage with, carefully selected priests, qualified and identified to do the task of forgiveness. It involves the spilling of blood, animals that are offered up for the sake of forgiveness from God. Here, here's my animal, here's my offering. It's, it's, it's very elaborate, it's very specific, it's, it's, it's very precise, and, and it's, it's, it's described in detail in the Old Testament, the temple system, the sacrificial system. If you want forgiveness from God, fine, but you must come to find it here, in this place, in this way. There's no other way. You can't just have it on the streets of Galilee. There's the temple. That's it. The temple is the way. But what these scribes perhaps haven't come to terms with is that even the temple, in fact, even the whole of the law, really was meant as a signpost for what was to come. That the temple, the law, all of these, these, these institutions given in the Old Testament, they're good gifts from God, but they're gifts in the sense that they point to something greater than themselves. If you, if you have the thing to which the one thing has been pointing, well, the signpost that's done the pointing becomes a little bit pointless, <laughs> It becomes irrelevant now because, well, the thing it pointed to has come. God has come. God has showed up. What did the temple point to? It pointed to God's desire and way of bringing forgiveness through sacrifice to the world. Yeah, the, the spilling of blood, the, the, the giving of forgiveness. It was important. It was necessary. But now Jesus has come. He's greater than the priesthood. Jesus is the priest. He's greater than the temple. Jesus is the temple. He's the dwelling place of God. He's greater than the, the offering up of animals' blood. Jesus offers up his own blood. Jesus has come. God has come offering life, peace, forgiveness, healing. He's just come. He's Emmanuel, God with us in, here in Galilee. What amazingly good news. He's come. This is surely good news for everybody. Unless, unless you really identify with the signpost. Unless you so bore in to the previous way that 
the new thing is a bit of a threat. You feel kind of like, well, you've passed me by. You've made me irrelevant. You've made me less important in the scheme. I used to be quite high on the food chain when it was all about the temple because I was in there with the priests and all the rest. I was part of that whole hierarchy. And now you're just offering forgiveness and healing out on the streets of Galilee to, to poor, crippled paralytics just like that. But what about me? What about us? What about the temple? What about the history? What about the tradition? What about me? And it can be like that with Jesus. You may have already noticed that. I noticed that when I read this book. I noticed that as I just try and do life, as I follow Jesus. I notice that he doesn't seem to have many hang-ups about respecting hierarchy, <laughs> about being a respecter of persons or positions or status or dignity. Don't, don't get me wrong. Jesus shows honour and gentleness to individual people like nobody else there's ever been. Jesus' love for people is extraordinary, but his interest in respecting the status quo is shockingly low. He just doesn't seem to mind stepping on toes. He just doesn't. He just doesn't. If Jesus shows up in your life, if you've, if you've, if you've built up a sense of self-importance, you'll find you've got a lot to lose when Jesus shows up. But if, you've, if you're like this paralytic and you've got nothing to lose, nothing, you're just a broken, lost sinner in desperate need of forgiveness and healing, Jesus is nothing but good news. If you're more aware of your importance than you are of your need, Jesus is bad news for you. But if you're more aware of your need than you are of your importance, Jesus is very good news. You see it all through the Gospels. It keeps happening. It keeps happening. It happens to us. It keeps happening to me, frankly. The more I try and follow Jesus, I just notice he just, if, if, if doing something wonderful for somebody means me being slightly offended by Jesus, I've noticed Jesus will go ahead and do something wonderful. He doesn't hold back from offending me. I would. He doesn't. I mean, it's just in silly ways. Like sometimes, you know, somebody in the church needs help and encouragement. I might spend a lot of time with someone trying to bring some teaching from the Bible and counsel and encouragement and pastoring to someone. I teach them stuff. I spend ages trying to explain something to them. And they don't seem to get it. And then they go away to one conference or they listen to one podcast by someone in a church on the other side of the world and they're set free in five minutes. And not only that, but they come and see me and say, all that stuff you taught me, I didn't get it, but the stuff that he said was amazing. And you should listen to it. Everyone in the church should listen to it. It's incredible. 
And I do listen to it, and I think, it's just the same as what I've been saying to you for hundreds of hours. They just say it with a cooler accent or something, or yeah, whatever it is. And it's like, what? I just, I just, Jesus, why do you bypass me? Why do you powerfully show up? And it doesn't, what about me and my importance and my role? And I am the senior pastor around here. Jesus doesn't care that much about that. <laughs> Have you noticed this? And, and, now, I'm making a joke of it, but I, it, it can be so painful in reality to, to have him just kind of turn stuff over in your life. And just, it's like, what? The, the secret, friends, honestly, the antidote has to be that we live like this paralytic, the way Jesus told us to. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Hold, hold your dignity, hold your greatness very lightly. Don't take yourself seriously. Not that seriously. Hold it lightly. God help me to live grateful for your forgiveness and your healing. Isn't that enough? Isn't that more wonderful than anything? To be content and joyful, in fact, overwhelmed with joy, overflowing with joy at the goodness of Jesus will set us free from this distracting kind of petty trivialities that we get hung up on. So, so authority that Jesus brings, we'll trample on some of our authority, but maybe we're well rid of it anyway. But then last of all, just let me make this last point. Look at the way Jesus conducts authority. Look at the way he uses his authority in this story the purpose for it. Bear, bear in mind, he's, he's used this phrase, son of man. And it is, it's a weighty title, the son of man. You know, Daniel saw in his dream, in, in Daniel chapter seven, the son of man, one like a son of man. In the, with the, in the clouds of heaven, he was given authority. Said, Daniel trembled. He was terrified. When Daniel saw Jesus, he was terrified. So when, when we think about the idea of authority, yeah, we, we get nervous and maybe, maybe it's understandable. I mean, certainly anyone in history who's come along with that level of authority, anybody who's had that much control, it's, it's never gone well, has it? Even the best people power will corrupt them most of the people that come to mind when we think of people with incredible authority it's the Hitlers and the Stalins and the Chairman Mao's that's why we have checks and balances and rule of law and we, we're glad for democracy because we're scared of the person who comes through with such authority what does Jesus do with his authority I love the phrase that he uses. So that you may know the Son of Man has authority, I say to you, stand up, pick up your bed, walk home. There you go. There you go. That's, that's the exercise of authority. If ever I wanted power, I often, I often have to check myself. Think, what, what is it that I want power for? Maybe just in a stupid way. You know, you get offended when you're riding a bike somewhere or driving somewhere, and somebody burns you up on the road, and suddenly you want miraculous powers. And you know, you know why? It's what I could do right now with laser eyes on your tyres right now. Why do I want power? 
because of my little petty goals and agendas. So I want, I want to cut corners. I, I want to be better than you. I want your respect. I want your time, I want your attention, I want your money. I want power so I can get stuff. Jesus says, here, I, I want to show you my power. Let me show you, let me show you. Rise up, walk. This is how the Son of Man exercises his phenomenal power. In mercy, in healing. That's what he came to do. That's what he came to do. He did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And bear that in mind, he is giving his life for these people. When he says to this man, your sins are forgiven, now rise up and walk, he's not, he's not being cheap. It's not easy for him to say any of this. Remember what Matthew said just a couple of chapters earlier. How was Jesus able to heal people? He, he took up their infirmities. He took them up on, him, on him, himself, on his own body. He took them into himself. Jesus sees a paralyzed man and watches him stand up and walk home, maybe dance home for all we know. Jesus, Jesus rejoices with everybody else. Everybody has a good day that day. Everyone goes to bed happy. What an amazing day we've had. Jesus goes to bed knowing I will carry that paralysis to the cross. It's, it's for his healing that I've come. And Jesus says to, to the worst person in the room, your sins are forgiven. We go home rejoicing. Jesus took it to the cross. He's not, just, he's not just throwing out an encouraging, cheap word. He suffered. He died. His mercy cost him everything. This is, this is the Son of Man. Having authority, such authority. How does he use it? How does he spend it? He spends it on you. Spends it in kindness. Spends it to see to it that you're raised up, you're established, you're given authority, you're brought to his throne, you're, you're honoured, you, you are established and raised up. He puts the scepter in your hand, he says, reign on my throne. This is what God's like. You want to know what God's like? Look at his son, look at his way, look at the cross. Look at the mercy of God and you see, you see his way, you see the very heart of him. So if you, you think, no one wants a judgmental Jesus, no one, wants a, no one wants that authority person, that scares me. My friend, look more closely. Look at him. Yeah, he is mighty. Yeah, he is a judge. Yeah, he has extraordinary authority. But you can trust him. You can trust him. You can totally trust him. You can follow him. You can put your whole life in his hands. And you know that he's only going to do you good. Let's pray right now. Father, we're so grateful for Jesus because without him, we wouldn't know. Lord, we wouldn't have a hope. We would be so lost. And we thank you. Thank you even for the story we heard of this baptism, this wonderful example of your grace. Lord, this testimony of someone saying, oh, I, I've learned to, to believe in the grace of God, that he accepts me at my worst, that he's given himself for me. 
Lord, we want to trust you with all our hearts and learn to live in the good of your kindness and your healing and follow you obediently as your servant, each one. I pray as we come to the table now and celebrate with bread and wine, we would each of us feed more and more each day on Jesus. And just like Matthew, we would behold, we would look, we would see each day something more of your goodness and your glory and be transformed by that. In Jesus' name, amen.